Hi everyone, welcome to the Life After Love Gone Wrong. Today, I have a special guest with me. Um, just as a reminder, as many of you know, my name is Sandra Fava. I'm a partner in the uh, Family Law Department at Fox Rothschild, resident in the Morristown, New Jersey office, but my practice takes me throughout New Jersey, especially given COVID and the change to some virtual aspects of our court. With me today is my longtime partner, Eric Salatoff, he is the co-chair of the Family Law Department for Fox Rothschild and has been practicing for over 30 years? Yes, that's about 32 years at this point. So he's the older but not always wiser of the two of us. Eric and I started out together. I was actually his associate right after my clerkship in Mars County for a family court judge. We were at a different firm and then he joined Fox Rothschild and I joined him shortly thereafter. So we have worked uh, a lot together, know each other very well personally and professionally. And one of Eric's specialties in his practice is contested custody matters in divorce situations. It for a long time seemed to be his calling. A lot of his cases had these contested custody issues. A lot of them being dealt with on heavy motion practice and trials. And Eric and I actually worked on uh, an appeal with regard to parent coordinators that set some case law here in the state of New Jersey, some precedential case law about the role of parent coordinators. And that started with a pilot program that came out in the early 2000s. Do you want to tell us a bit about that, Eric? Yeah, so the, the issue of parent coordinators has been the bane of my existence for a long time. I've had a real love-hate relationship with the role. When I first started as a young lawyer, there were so many different names, parent coordinators, parent coaches, parent monitors, therapeutic monitors, and so forth, with little uniformity in the courts about what they can do, what the role was to be, whether it's binding, whether it's not binding, who could serve, and so forth. And it was almost like the Wild West. Uh, with regard to uh, the role, in around 2008, give or take, the Supreme Court did a pilot program limited to five or six counties that had a model order and some model guidelines as to who could be a parent coordinator. But that didn't really resolve the problem because all the other counties were still appointing parent coordinators. And then there was a dispute as to whether they were bound by the rules of the pilot program or not. Ultimately, the case law came out and said that they were, but you still had the same problems in terms of the issue. Also, for too many lawyers and judges, it became this alleged panacea where we're just going to dump these problem cases off on some other professional and let them yes. figure it out. And there were two problems with that. One, the law became very clear, as and in the case that Sandra was mentioning, our, our parish case, where it confirmed that courts can't delegate decision-making authority to a third party. But also, it was a problem because often the orders of appointment did not give the parent coordinator binding authority. And when I say binding authority, not binding authority, but subject to judicial review, such that if the person didn't want to follow the recommendation, they, just, they didn't have to follow it and then the person who got the favorable recommendation still had to go to court and the process became abusive. And typically how these things worked is, well, sometimes you have two people who are really problematic. In a lot of these cases, it was one person who was really, whether it's because they're a narcissist or whatever other reason, 
they just wouldn't ever agree to anything, created problems. And time after time, the parent coordinator would rule in the favor of the other parent and that parent wouldn't agree. And then more, what was supposed to be less in fees became more because you had the PC process, parent coordination process, and then you had a full motion, which ultimately always rubber stamped the parent coordinator anyway. So that was a pilot program. It went until about 2012 or 2013, and it was vacated. And when the court vacated, the Supreme Court vacated the pilot program, they still said parent coordinators can be still appointed by judges. And there was a similar model form of order, but you still had the same level of wild west and that anything could happen because you didn't have guidelines anymore that were in place. So two things before you move on, one comment and then one question. My comment is that when I work with clients and we talk about parent coordinators and they ask me why, and when judges, you know, order it, I say to clients, if a judge can have a professional come in and work with parties and not have to quote unquote, put the hammer down and make a decision on something that affects your child or children, they are very inclined to do that because in talking to judges throughout practice and chambers and at seminars and in, in any which way, I think that it's fair to say that most of them, the biggest stressor in their jobs in family court is issues related to children. Would you agree with that? I agree. And they don't want to make the decision because it's a hard decision. And they would prefer the people work it out amongst themselves. Which yeah. and parent, parent coordinators are judges. So. Right. And in theory, a parent coordinator should be helping you do that. But to Eric's point, the language is not clear. And so it, it often can end up with other problems that arise from it. Even after Parish was decided and issued, do you think that judges still abdicate issues to parent coordinators. Absolutely. Yeah, I actually think that there was a, a period of time after Parish where judges were careful, and now the pendulum has swung almost right back to it that where you even bring up Parish, many judges will find a workaround as to why they are abdicating to a PC. Abdicating to PCs and any other professions. There's some, there are some counties that are so loath to make a decision that they appoint, in the same case, they appoint a parent coordinator, they'll appoint a guardian ad litem, they'll appoint a, an attorney for the child. You'll have all of these professions, you'll have custody experts as well, and all, all in lieu of actually somebody making a tough decision, which again, the, the cynical me sometimes thinks that some of these appointments are meant to punish the parties for not being able to resolve their dispute I agree. Mm -hmm. or get them in a posture where they have to send so much money that they just either give up or relent yes. because it's, there's just too many professionals to pay. Uh, the non-cynical part of me is thinks that it's still, it's hard again, especially you have a lot of new judges. You have a lot of judges who didn't practice family law as attorneys. And even those that did, these are hard issues, but it, it's required. What I started to see in some of these orders, and in the one case where I was appointed by a judge as a parent coordinator, I insisted that the order at least say that my decision was binding unless somebody went to court. So it put yeah. the onus on the person who was opposed to the order to do something so that the process was 
ever so slightly less abusive. Uh, yes. And I saw that as something that is work a workaround that I think made sense because it wasn't a total abdication that is unless the judge just rubber stamped what the parent coordinator did, but it wasn't at least on its face a total abdication, but it, it, it served the purpose of the program and the concept of the appointment, mm -hmm. which is to allow people to get the help they need to make day to day. And that's the yes. key. We'll talk about that more when we get to the new statute uh, or court rule. Day to day decisions regarding their children, logistical decisions regarding their children. That's the type of thing where at least it makes people think twice to file motions that are largely frivolous if the order's already technically in effect by virtue of the order saying that the, the person who objects has to make the motion and it's binding pending a court determination. And I think to your point, Eric, what you said is that there's, they're appointing in some counties more and more experts to help deal with parties who, who are families who can't get on the same page with regard to their children. I've seen that a lot too. In addition to the ones you've mentioned, a hot one at the moment seems to also involve a co-parenting therapist. The problem that I see and that I have clients facing and, and working through is that there is still an unclear path for these individuals, these professionals. So a parent coordinator is somebody who does what Eric just said, the day-to-day, what are we doing for pickup and drop off and childcare? And I want to take vacation this week and you want to take it that week. Those types of issues, high conflict parents who, who can't have a discussion or reach agreement on some of those other issues. A co-parenting therapist is somebody who provides a therapeutic setting where people are talking about why they're not able to communicate effectively. That's my understanding of it. And, and the idea with that is that this therapist will help them get to a better place where the PC is needed less. Instead, what appears to be happening a lot of the time is that there is like a dumping of all of these experts into the mix, and then it causes confusion and frustration for the parties involved. Now clients are saying, well, I don't wanna go through a full-blown evaluation uh, because of cost or time, both of the things combined, whatever. And so if you're in a mediation or a judge will recommend, well, what about a parent coordinator? And a parent coordinator is not there, is not going to be able to deal with all of the issues that have you know, brought these people to the place they are now. And I think that there's a misunderstanding or a misrepresentation about what the role of the PC is. And I'm curious to see, let's talk about the, the changes to the court order and what you think that will bring about as, as part of the ameliorative process of these appointments. Well, let me just comment just before we jump, I just want to comment on this co-parenting therapist issue, because I, I just literally just had a trial this past year. It was a 30 day trial. The large part of it was custody and parenting. And the two parents both wanted 50, 50. And for reasons I won't get into, it never made sense. The father in that case had significant issues regarding things like communication, making any concession about any issue, even like the term compromise. If when his testimony and his experts testimony would suggest that what they suggested was a compromise would suggest that they didn't actually understand what the English word compromise was actually defined it. It was that bad. And the right. expert, his expert conceded that he had all these problems 
but his recommendation to for 50-50 was, well, send him to co-parenting therapy to teach him how to co-parent. And I kept asking over and over, so my client has to pay for a therapist because your client can't communicate, can't compromise, can't do all the things that is in, endemic to co-parenting? And okay. he said, yes, and the judge rejected it. And we don't have a co-parenting therapist, but we do have a pair coordinator. So it's that. I just, these things sometimes become the, the, the uh, panacea of the day, of, you know, the solution of the day, because this stuff is hard. Uh, yeah. Hopefully the new, the new court rule uh, will help that. And as you mentioned, starting September 1st, the Supreme Court enacted rule 5.8D, which is a brand new court rule, which is to regulate parent coordinators. Now the court rule in and of itself is not all that helpful in terms of what there is that a parent coordinator's role should be, who could be a parent coordinator. It refers to a parent coordination guidelines, which are on the, the judiciary website, which were released uh, a few days into the month of September of 2023. But the rule talks about the general, the general aspects of parent coordination. One, when can a parent coordinator be appointed? Only after the entry of a either a temporary or final parenting order or parenting plan. Meaning that if there is no parenting plan in place, the court can't just appoint the parent coordinator to deal with warring parents. Uh, so that sets forth some uh, more clarity about when they could be appointed. And again, the rule sets forth what the person is supposed to do, and it's to facilitate the resolution of day-to-day -day parenting issues in a timely manner when parties cannot resolve issues on their own. And I'm reading from the rule there. Again, more clarity. Coordinators should provide guidance and direction to the parties with the children's best interest as the primary focus. Again, what is, what's this all about? And the goal of the parent coordinator is to aid and monitor to effectuate the parenting plan that's in place and to reduce misunderstandings and miscommunications. That's where it should, where the, the rules uh, go in terms of what the parent coordinator should do. And it also talks about facilitating decision-making whenever practical, making recommendations when the parties can't resolve things. So in theory, and we'll see how it works, <laughs> works in practice, it, the goal is to try and come to a consensus before putting the hammer down and making the recommendation. In terms of appointment, the rule talks about there being a statewide roster of parent coordinators. And if you want to appoint someone, if you want to select someone from that's not on the statewide roster, it can only be done by way of consent, which means the uh, court can't just appoint a retired judge who is their friend, who, who might not be on the list, or somebody else who's not on the list. And then it reflects, the, the rule then talks about the guideline in form of order, which wasn't published at the time, which is now part of the guidelines that have been implemented uh, and released. I think the guidelines or the rule amendment also, in many ways, tells a parent coordinator what they can't do, right? They can't make decisions about medical care. So yes, in the guidelines and in the model order that has been implemented, things that it says specifically the parent coordinator can't do, which again, were sometimes hot button issues. One, the parent coordinator can't make recommendations regarding financial issues. 
right. seems to make sense, but a lot of times there were fights regarding extracurricular activities yes. or unreimbursed medical expenses that were sent to a parent coordinator. That's now out, although I guess parties can agree to that if they want to, but it's not part of what anything a court can do. And the other thing, and more importantly, really, is parent coordinator cannot make recommendations to modify legal or physical custody, not on a temporary basis, not on a long-term basis. And you used to see that happening, and that was a problem uh, for a variety of reasons, because they're not experts and they're not doing evaluations and so forth. But you would also see in prior orders, prior iterations of model orders, that parent coordinators can make recommendations to temporarily change custody, which is done without a hearing. And they say, well, it's temporary, except good luck getting into court on any reasonably quick basis to have the, the necessary plenary hearing or trial that is going to address to change custody, temporary or otherwise. Any good parts of this order, this new thing, that is the best part of it. So you take you yes. take that mess, take that out of the mix. You would think, well, temporary, okay, well, it's a day or two, but sometimes these day or two could turn into weeks and months or never ending. And that's really the problem. If you want to have a real custody fight, have a real custody fight, but then you do it in a different way. But what they can do, and they list out almost 15, more 15, 16 items, time, place, manner of pickup and drop off, childcare arrangements, minor or temporary alterations in parenting schedules for weeknight, weekends, holidays, vacation, special events that will not substantially alter the parenting plan. Right. Okay, big thing. Dates for summer vacation, because no matter what your agreement says, there's always a fight. Yes. Schedules and conditions of phone contact, text or email, while the child is in the other parent's custody, because people can't get that straight often. Selection and scheduling of activities and resolving conflicts concerning child's participation and recreation, enrichment, and extracurricular activities and programs. But referrals to other professionals. We talk about the activity, not the payment. That's right. That's specifically not allowed. So just understanding right. and, that and there's look, a distinction there. And I'm sure we and every other family lawyer can tell you a thousand stories about whether the other parent should be allowed to come to karate or art class or music class or whether it's got to be a joint class or a separate class and whether it's on Tuesday or Thursday and, and yes. how dare you schedule something during my parenting time, kiddies, soccer and baseball and whatever is typically on the weekend and it's almost inevitably going to interfere. And by the way, I'm a child of divorce who was, who experienced that own fight between my own parents 40 some odd years ago because baseball was on the weekends and they don't schedule baseball and activities on alternate weekends. They schedule <laughs> every weekend typically. And, right. you know, and I lived through that as well. So you would think that this is, is logical, but logic doesn't always dictate people's mindset when dealing with these issues. Referrals to other professionals to involve family functioning, including for a custody or other focused evaluation. My guess is that this is, instead of being allowed to change custody, if a parent coordinator sees something that nuclear that has gone on, whether it's bad parenting, whether it's something that is abuse or abuse light, whether it is a child needing a therapist because 
they are decompensating, whatever it might be. This is this is the opportunity to send up flares and a warning to suggest that there may need other professionals who can then make those recommendations. Yeah. Child's travel and passport arrangements. Think that would be easy. Who holds the passport? And no. Get the passport. I've seen too many orders to show cause because somebody didn't get the passport until seconds before a flight. Yes. Uh, equipment and personal possessions of a child, including movement of items between households. Again, it would, it would, it would seem logical that little Jimmy needs his baseball bat to go and glove to go to baseball practice, but that's not always the case. Clarification of provisions and parenting plans to address inadvertent gaps that occur. No days, Monday holidays, new holidays that creep up on the schedules. When there's things like that, where you, you have this day off that it's got to be blood sport, even if both people are working, it's blood right. sport as to who has the kid. Information exchanges regarding school health and social activity and communications about the children between the parties. Again, more of an issue when I was a younger lawyer with a lot less gray hair. Now, most things, there's communi electronic communications where both parties are involved, whether it's TeamSnap or other things where everybody is getting the same information typically, but it still happens and I still see it happening. Yes. Consistency in child disciplinary matters, usually a big fight, often not a big fight during the marriage, often a big fight after a divorce. Significant changes in appearance, including hair color, haircuts, hair color changes, dress codes, manicures. I assume this is probably piercings as well. Yeah. And things that are more of an issue now than when I was a younger lawyer. And then uh, the two others, less limited by domestic violence restraining order, how the parties communicate with each other, with the child and in the child's presence. Yep. Problems that people would think were common sense, but are not. And then any other issues that people can agree upon to help effectuate custody and parenting time. So that, that's the parameters that are now set. And these same parameters are both in the guidelines and right in the body of the form of order. And I think, again, where they can't make decisions of legal custody, I think uh, clients sometimes forget and they don't always have their lawyer involved when they're working with a parent coordinator because of a cost factor or otherwise. That includes things like where your child goes to school, what kind of religious education they get. You can't abdicate those things to a parent coordinator. So those are specific, in my opinion, instances where you need to get the court involved if you're not in agreement, because those are questions of legal custody. And if you have a shared legal custody situation, which many people do, barring exceptional circumstances, a PC can't make that decision for you. So keeping that in mind. So. We're going to wrap up a bit, but I want to say one thing and ask one question. I want to say that I think that both Eric and I share this sentiment that we don't uh, think parent coordinators are not useful and we're not here to bash them in any way, shape or form. We work with them often in many of our cases. So that's not the, um, the message of today's episode, but more so that understanding their role if you're going to be going down that path or if that conversation comes up and it comes up often in cases nowadays where there's custody disputes. Second, I think, Eric, I'd like you to share what you think the biggest takeaway would be when working with a parent coordinator. What would be your like biggest piece of advice? Be reasonable. For a parent, 
think of your child first and be reasonable. I, you hear this all the time. Love your child more than you hate your ex-spouse or current yes. spouse. That's what I think is the biggest takeaway. I, I've used, like I said, I've used parent coordinators for more than 20 years. And like I said, I have a love-hate relationship with the process because I've seen it do very good things and calm some issues. And I've seen it become a further avenue for abuse of the process. The takeaway, at least for these new guidelines, is that there's much more detail here than there ever was, ever was. in both the guidelines and the model orders in terms of who's qualified, who can serve, what training you need to get if you're going to be on the list, what things you can do and what you can't do. This is so critical and hopefully this will be a watershed moment for the process and mm -hmm. that it will be followed and there won't have to be litigation over what this really means because it is so much more detailed than it ever was. So I am cautiously optimistic because I am a cynic and I've been doing this for very long, a very long time, but I'm cautiously optimistic that we now have pieces in place to guide the yes. courts, the professionals, and even the parties. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. The be reasonable is so important. And I would also add to that, um, if we're gonna have any you know, parent coordinators or even judges sometimes listen to our, read our blog or listen to our podcasts and whatnot, is to say that if you are somebody who works as a parent coordinator, I understand we all have to make a living, of course, but if you are very busy, I think you have to be fair to the people who are coming to you because these are people who are generally and genuinely need your assistance. And I think it's a disservice to everyone when a PC takes on a matter and they're just overwhelmed. There are lots of great PCs out there um, that I've worked with. We've worked with many times over the years and you can tell when they're just, their practice is just too large, too much volume that they're not doing the same level of work that they did a couple of years ago when you use them for the first time. And that's what happens, right? Good, the good people get booked up fast, no different than doctors or anything else, any other professional. Uh, so as a client, you have to take that in mind too and, and understand that you're not anyone's only client, just like you're not anyone's only patient. But at the same time, I would say to the professionals is, please be mindful of that when you're taking on a new matter um, and working with these people. In a lot of instances, parent coordinators are firefighters. Now, yes. and, and you learn quickly, there are actual fires and there are things that are not emergencies, but the people think they're emergencies. Part of the role as a parent coordinator to, is to educate the people as to which, which is a real emergency and which is not. But to Sandra's point, when there is a real emergency, there's no sense trying to put out a fire after the house is burned to the ground. And sometimes, you know, when you, when there is an emergency, deal with the emergency. Because the worst part of that is that if there's a parent coordinator order and the parent coordinator is not available and somebody goes to court on an order to show cause, the court's likely going to kick it back to the parent coordinator, which is where they try to get in the first place, which is what happened in the Parish case. So right. we, Well, that's it for today. Um, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Eric, why don't you give out your contact information? Yeah, it's esolitoff at foxrothschild.com. Also, you can look on our website for our New Jersey family law blog that has a lot of 
great content on both parent coordination and a lot of other New Jersey family court issues. That's it. That's where you can find me. And his bio is on there too. You can also find me on our Fox Rothschild website on sfava at foxworld.com. And we're both on Twitter and LinkedIn and all of those other places. So you can get some more knowledge about us as individuals and how we handle our practices. All right. Have a good day, everyone. Thanks a lot. This was fun. Bye.